You're listening to the Automotive Analyst Series, a podcast by Red Blue Capital. I'm your co-host, Prescott Watson, and along with my partner, Olaf Sackers, we're interviewing the researchers behind the buy, sell, and hold calls that drive the news cycle. Each episode, we're opening up the floor to an analyst that covers our space and looking for a broader, behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. We're less about the latest earnings call and more about how each analyst weaves together a narrative about where and why our industry is moving. We'll dive into how automotive equity research is itself changing, challenge our guests on their views, and highlight stories that are overlooked by general news coverage. For highlights, show notes, and to find more episodes of this and other Red Blue Capital podcasts, visit us online at news.red.blue. For our inaugural episode, Olaf and I speak with Philippe Pouchois, Managing Director at Jefferies and Head of their Equity Research for the Automotive Sector. Philippe has been covering autos in the U.S. and Europe since the early 2000s and was notable for being among the earlier analysts to turn very bullish on Tesla. We open with Philippe sharing a view on how cars can create and capture more value by taking on roles beyond transportation. Next, Philippe shares several moments from his career that really stood out, people he met, things he saw that he just knew were different. He starts with the late Sergio Marchion, the celebrated former head of Fiat Chrysler, and how his outsider perspective was key to turning Fiat around. Next, we look at a factory tour that Philippe and I actually both took part at in Tesla in 2018. Most people saw that as a complete mess, but Philippe looked at the tent and saw something totally different in how Tesla was making cars. Years later, Tesla is almost impossible to avoid in discussing, so Philippe shares with us how the rise of such a superstar stock has changed the world of auto research. And finally, a thread that appears throughout this conversation is the trend towards simplification. Philippe discusses how the vastly simpler nature of electric cars is one that creates problems for the industry in lots of ways, from consolidation and job losses, down to questions around what does luxury mean when every car is quiet, fast, and can be well-designed. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Philippe. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and you jetted back here, rather Eurostart back here recently from Paris. You were there for the Renault earnings? I was there for the Renault earnings on Friday morning and just decided to take a little time walking around Paris. You're originally from Paris? No, I grew up in the west of France. Went to school there, but haven't lived in Paris for a long time. You were saying that you think Paris hasn't changed that much despite the hype around uh, Hidalgo's pro-bicycle anti-car policies. We saw the same thing almost when we were there for a few weeks. Yeah, there are many more bikes, no doubt, but it still seems to be just as many cars as before, or the congestion doesn't seem to be very different, except that, of course, there are many more bikes and scooters. Olaf and I, when we went there, a lot of investor types are the folks that own multiple cars and expect to drive their Jaguars into town, and so we've heard some people express consternation. I feel like in a lot of cities that have uh, no car zones, there's a buildup of energy before, and there seems to then be a drop-off when people see that it ultimately doesn't change their their lives too much and it actually can be quite good. I think in reality, most large cities just have the same level of congestion, which is the roads are full and so everything slows down to whatever speed and then only the people willing to tolerate that level of slowness are driving, which is a lot of people and so I think things stay full. Yeah, and it's true, the main complaints come from people who tend to work in the city. If you have to go through the city, then your, your work is impaired, no doubt. And you can't go on the metro in Paris with your tools if you're a plumber. And that's, that's going to be always an issue that cannot be resolved easily. 
But I think for most people, especially in Paris, when you have that density of metro entry points and a train every two minutes or so, I think it's relatively easy to find alternatives. So maybe the first thing is, what do you do? (laughs) And then beyond that, how did you start doing it? Right. So I'm an equity analyst at Jefferies, and my job is basically to analyze this industry, understand the trends, but also model the earnings of car makers, their suppliers, and then from there derived investment recommendations for institutional investors. And, and of course, also a lot of the work is both to understand the long-term trends of the industry, what's going to happen, and also devise what the shorter-term earnings developments will be earning and cash flow, which of course then drive the share prices. What's your favorite thing about this job? It's a lot of diversity in what we do. There's the short term, the long term, which is challenging sometimes. I think as analysts, we have access to senior management of companies much more easily than many people who even work in these organizations. And so that access is important. And then the debate with investors, you know, the way they look at them, their, their way of looking at it feeds your thinking. And and just a debate between very often very intelligent people who ask questions about, you know, should I do this? Have you thought about this? What's the long term versus the short term? I think it's just that the debate with investors, which is probably the most interesting. And it, it, it feeds your ideas into it also because they, you know, the question they ask you, give you, oh, I hadn't thought about this. And then I'll dig out some more. And what is less easy, of course, is the stress because something happens and you're supposed to have an intelligent view within five minutes. But that's, that's all part of the package. One of the things that we've noticed a lot in the analyst community is there's this shift of autos as being a discrete function into being a function that is more blended with the technology groups. You were just in Paris and we were talking about the policies and the sort of anti-car policies of Anne Hidalgo. I think over the last few years, everyone's been talking about how cars are becoming the new smartphone. And that's what people are thinking about. Mm-hmm. Maybe the next wave is what is the future of the car when, you know, People are, are in changing urban environments. Are people talking about the future of cars and, and urban space, you know, around the boardroom, so to speak, or when they're talking, you know, about their quarterly earnings? Yeah, no, I think there's certainly, at the level of the companies that I look at and the investment community, trying to understand how cars will be used in the future. I think if we start from today, a car is an, an amazing waste of resources in a way. You know, it's complicated, use a lot of materials, and then it's used very little. What's interesting is understand how the car will be used for its purpose of mobility differently in the future. Will it be shared? Will it be automated? And then something I spend a lot of time is think about this, what I call the utility function of a car. If it's just to go from A to B and helps your social status and doesn't get used very much, it has a relatively low utility function. If your car can be connected, you can do some work in it. You can stream videos in the back for your children. Its utility function goes up. If it becomes autonomous, you know, Tesla, for example, is dreaming of, it can generate income. Or if it is also a, a, a storage mechanism for electricity as a battery, then as a consumer, you could, to some extent, go off-grid. It's between you, your car and your house, in a way, that provides your, your power requirements, especially if you generate your own power. And otherwise, your car becomes part of an intelligent grid. So there's m- multiple layers that all of a sudden m- can transform the car from relatively low utility function to a relatively high utility function. And with that come new revenue streams, new business models for the car industry. A lot of the changes that you talked about have come within the car industry, but 
the ones that we've spent most of our time looking at, and I know that you think about all the time, have like hit the industry from the outside. It's almost like Google's working on a self-driving car project. Five years later, the car companies start to, to move around it, right? Mm. Android Auto, Apple uh, CarPlay, the interior experience you have in your car, it's mostly owned by Instagram for Americans these days. Now car companies react and suppliers think, how do we get a better experience? It's interesting to see the balance of what changes the industry from the outside versus what's actually coming from the inside. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting that the utility function you're describing is arguably increased the most when cars are put into a different shared business model, mm-hmm. such as Uber, and yet uh, these business models struggle to be successful. Mm-hmm. So there's a tension that makes it difficult for cars' utility functions, in fact, to be increased. And I think if you mention Uber or shared mobility, and I think it's, it probably is, to be more profitable, those business models need us to pay more for transport. And the fact, even though we know or intuitively we can agree that having one's own car is more expensive than sharing a car, it still is you know, a preference or a safe space for many consumers. And what prevents the, the shared transport to be able to charge more is maybe the fact that we have a benchmark elsewhere, which is the cost of a tube ticket or a subway. And, and so the, the shared mobility is caught in between. People who are paying too much or they know it, but it doesn't matter. It's their choice. And then the benchmark of the, of the public transport. Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to go on a, a bit mm-hmm. of a side tangent about how transit is already heavily subsidized which is why we expect transit to cost x Mm -hmm. and then especially for cars parking spaces heavily subsidized which is Mm -hmm. the subsidy on the underutilization the lack of the increase of the utility function Mm -hmm. every construction that happens has to have parking space basically set aside which is where i think the services in the middle are are getting squeezed by both sides i think it's interesting i think in in a way that the whole infrastructure around using a car is, as you say, you know, heavily subsidized. And you mentioned parking, and it's true, particularly in the U.S., I think. And against that, the car itself, at least in Europe, is increasingly taxed. So there's a whole infrastructure heavily subsidized, and there's the product itself, which consumers are feeling. Of course, consumers won't integrate in their mindset that they're not paying for roads in the way they should, they're not paying for other parts of the infrastructure. But they feel that all of a sudden the right to park goes up or the, uh, the fuel tax goes up. And, and then we've seen you know, in situations that it can be a hot topic, the car. We saw the protest in France. And so it's, it's going to be very difficult for public policy to balance you know, who should pay what fairly for the infrastructure or the whole background of the auto usage and the consumers who find that they're getting more and more taxed. So you mentioned that you cover these large debates that are happening. What other debates do you think are really interesting and live mm-hmm. right now? What's, going back to saying, I think the, the product as we know it, as we've known it for years, is an incredibly wasteful product. And, and so I think the, some of the fantastic you know, trends that we look at, of course, electrification. There's a whole debate around you know, are EVs really that much better for the environment in terms of emissions? I think they do. They, they are, but it's, it's a long process. What does the other side of the debate say? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a fair point. It's when you build an EV compared to a traditional ICE car, your, your manufacturing emissions are probably 30% higher. So you need to drive the car for a while. Is the electricity you use to charge your car clean or not? And we're missing data to have the proper analysis. I don't think people disagree with the concept of EVs. I think everybody who's driven one enjoys it and that people don't tend to go back to to ICE when they've had an EV. And I think they're much more energy efficient. You use fewer kilowatt hour per mile or 100 
kilometers, whichever way you look at it, than for any combustion engine. So if we're going to transition to a world that uses energy better and eventually cleaner energy, then EVs are much more efficient than any other vehicle type. So looking back at your career, are there any kind of key moments that come to mind that you would look to as, as defining moments that shaped your view? Yeah, and no, I can think of, of two meetings. I think the first one is when Sergio Marchion became the CEO of Fiat. And it was 2005, and I met the man, you know, and I was just listening to him, the way he looked at the industry, the way his perspective was different, and he was not from the car industry. He has just joined. But you could sense that you know, he disliked any waste of capital. And he saw the car industry and kind of wondered why did he join and at the time, I remember we asked him, why did you join Fiat? And his response to me was basically, if you're Italian, you have to become CEO of Fiat. It's like being asked to become the Pope. You just don't say no. <laughs> and, but you can sense he didn't like the car industry. And from the beginning, he thought that, that something had to be addressed in terms of the waste of capital. And then the way he talked about it, the way he presented things, the way also he was you know, well aware of the, the way the industry had been mistreating divisions, buying, selling, or workers not knowing if the next day they'll be part of the group or not, the restructuring. And there was you know, this desire to stop wasting capital, but this desire also to be maybe more fair in running those businesses. And I thought it was fresh, <laughs> definitely. And I, I, that, that stayed with me. And, uh, and he certainly had a huge influence on the car industry. But take a step back. So this was before Fiat took over Chris. There was when he became CEO of Fiat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did he inherit when he stepped into that role within Fiat? Which mm-hmm. at the time, it was primarily, and it was an Italian company. Mm-hmm. Its primary vehicle base were sales in Europe, mm-hmm. I would imagine, probably parts of Africa. Yeah. But what was the company he was inheriting when he came mm-hmm. in? Uh, well, see, even worse than that, he inherited a conglomerate. Because at the time, they owned Ferrari, of course, but they also owned CNH, the tractors. They owned Iveco, the trucks, and they owned the Fiat brand. And outside of Ferrari, none of those businesses were great. And so he had to make sense. And he basically spun off what, at least on paper, were the better businesses that he had. He spun off the trucks and the machinery. And he spun off Ferrari. And he always kept under his control the least attractive part of the business, which put a lot of pressure on him and his management team to make it better, And which was a very different approach to what you would expect management team. Management team would try to make sure they make maybe their life a bit better or easier. Every step of the way, he made life better for shareholders, but more difficult for himself. And there was definitely you know, a view that you know, eventually he would want to get out of the auto industry somehow. But the surprise back in 2009 or 10 now is how he had to double down to eventually find a way of diluting autos. And so that's why this acquisition of Chrysler was so exceptional, because he had turned around Fiat to a level where it was sustainable and could actually take on another task. And acquiring Chrysler was effectively what made Fiat you know, more viable. Was part of what made the initial kind of introductional meeting when you first saw him come onto the scene mm-hmm. impressive? Partly because you could see the seeds of what came next. You could see a, a, a totally different way of looking at, at the industry. I think if I look at car makers, they tend to do the same thing. You know, it's not a huge amount of differentiation. And one f- tries something that works and they all follow. It's like platforms and it became proliferation models, etc. And Sergio Marchion came from outside the industry. He was a keen driver, <laughs> but he didn't like the industry. He liked the cars that he had at least. And so it was interesting, and 
I find what's interesting is I think some of the bigger changes we've seen to the industry is are coming from the outside. You were mentioning you know, the technology now. I think Tesla is probably the best thing that happened to this industry because everything Tesla does is a challenge to the way the industry operates. And so that's an extreme case. But you know, fresh eyes like Sergio Marchion or the pressure to from technology Google or Apple that put pressure on the industry to improve the product, improve connectivity. Sadly, I find f- few of those initiatives come initially from inside the industry. And at the same time, what saves the industry is that it is large, complex, big, powerful. And then the product is such that it's hard for someone like Apple or someone like Google to start making cars. One, they don't want to because the returns aren't exactly attractive. And two, there's a, a complex product, safety requirements. But it, it, it seems like this car industry needs this outside influence or pressure to actually get better. And But the outside influence, with maybe the exception of Tesla, which seems to be now a very viable car maker, the strength of the industry is they still do things that very few people are able to do or willing to do, which is complex, manufacture a complex product and assume a lot of responsibility and liability for putting that product on the road or in the hands of customers. So tell us more about the actual process Sergio took to change Fiat, the conglomerate. Mm-hmm. When you had that first meeting, what were the doubts and why was that such an interesting and pivotal meeting in, in your mind when you look mm-hmm. back at, the, at your career? What, what I wanted, of course, this thing we always wonder as analysts know, he's an outsider, he's not from the industry, what does he know? <laughs> Which turned out to be his strength. And I think what Fia had, though, or, or Sergio Marchand had was this structure where the O'Neill family, if you look, was behind Exo and behind Fiat, had almost lost their whole wealth in the deterioration of Fiat over many years. So there was something I think you know, Sergio Martin understood from the beginning. He had a, a very clear mission, which was to preserve fiat and reverse the loss of wealth that the family had incurred for many years. And that there was a clear understanding between him and well, John Elkan, who was already at the time you know, taking control of, of, of fiat. And this you know, complete harmony between m- the management team understands what they need to do, which is to preserve the business, make it successful, and reverse the, the loss of wealth. And then you know, John Elkan supporting him. I think in, initially, what I find interesting with Sergio Marchio, I think many people would say he was a mentor to John Elkan. And, and I think John Elkan would recognize that you know, very openly. But he never forgot who he was basically reporting to. Because when you come, become more and more successful, powerful, and then the risk is that you forget what your place is. He was always, you know, reporting to John, and it was a very mutual, mutually beneficial relationship. So you mentioned there were two moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the other one is Tesla, where I think it was third quarter of 2018 when Tesla became profitable for the first time. And I was fortunate enough to be on the West Coast shortly after that in November. So I visited the plant in Fremont, and it was very interesting because this business had just become profitable. And I saw the plants and it's the good, the bad, and the ugly in a way. You had some pretty ugly, oh, it's not ugly, but very traditional. The, the stamping presses went back to Numi and the JV with Toyota, between Toyota and GM. They were quite you know, old, but that's fine for presses. But then at the same time, there's a very sophisticated system of quick die change installed in, in that. The die change was really interesting. It was where basically the stamp releases itself mm. after it's made a stamp. And then another robot would go in, grab the shape inside mm-hmm. of the stamp, and mm-hmm. then swap it for a new shape. That's mm-hmm. what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah? yeah? I haven't seen nearly as many factories mm-hmm. as you have, but that yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's true. And the, the Japanese were the first one, I think, to put in place those quick die change. But uh, certainly it was interesting. The, they kept the old, which you would, because those presses can live for a long time. 
but they had modernized them very quickly to make them much more productive. And, and then we moved to body in white, a lot of robots, very sophisticated. The safety around those robots was questionable. You could see sparks flying towards you and you had to run away. So it's an interesting contrast. And then moving on to the assembly process itself, which at the time was in the tent. And the tent itself, there's not an issue at all. It's just you could see that the, the process was stop and go. The assembly line would stop and cars were taken offline and they had to be fixed before they could rejoin the line. And looking at this, and my experience with manufacturers, that wow, if this company can make profitable cars in that plant, there's a massive amount of, of scope to improve. And that, that was a big part of our change of view, where we had been quite cautious initially around the Tesla investment case because of the amount of vertical integration and the difficulty in ramping up manufacturing. And after seeing that, we thought, no, definitely, there's so much room to improve. Or Tesla is struggling to do something that so many car makers do well, and they're doing things that nobody else can do. And so from that standpoint, the risk was very much skewed to the upside because there was no reason why Tesla couldn't learn and improve on what traditional car makers were doing. This was basically when Tesla was in quote-unquote manufacturing hell, and they were trying to ramp up mm-hmm. the Model 3, yeah. and mm-hmm. it was just at the beginning mm-hmm. stages. Yeah. And what you're saying is many people might have gone through that factory and looked at it, like many people were saying at the time in the news coverage. Mm-hmm. They're making cars in a tent. What a mess. Look, look at how disorganized this company mm-hmm. is. How is it going to succeed given that it doesn't even have smoothly running mm-hmm. manufacturing lines and it needs to scale up to many more vehicles? Yeah. But you're saying you looked at this from a different perspective. You said if Tesla is such a mess in its manufacturing and is yet still able to make the numbers work and do this somewhat efficiently as the process improves, as it surely will over time, mm, yeah. the profitability is only going to increase. Mm-hmm. It was mostly the most striking for me was how a few things that nobody else could do and they couldn't do things that 50 or 60 car makers could do quite successfully. And the skew was just too big. You know, if and we still today, other comics are still struggling to do some of the stuff that Tesla does. And, uh, and yes, we can argue endlessly about the quality of the build and some issues and all this. But overall, they have proved that, I think, to, to some extent for me, they are revolutionizing auto manufacturing in the same way that Toyota did in the 70s and, of course, Henry Ford in the 1910s. And that's not that I could see that in that plant. All I could see is a situation where this process of manufacturing was so inefficient and still they were profitable and therefore there's no reason why they cannot improve. And it's bearing out in the numbers today, the margin per vehicle, uh, you're much closer mm-hmm. to this, but it, mm-hmm. it's getting up there to be one of the highest in the industry, mm-hmm. at least in its price class, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At that price point, yes, it is. So it's pretty much the price point of Volkswagen and double the margin. A Model 3 of 40, 45K, that's almost $7,000 in margin. And you look at the total cost structure, the famous no advertising, different dealerships set up. You have a much more lean business, almost mm. kind of something that I would imagine Sergio would be, would be <laughs> jealous of. Yeah. I think it's difficult to know exactly what's going on, of course. But I think the fact that they sell directly to customers without going through dealers probably give them a bit of margin. But I think a lot of it is the concept of the vehicle and also the fact that there is a drive to avoid complexity in what they do, try to have as few models as possible, as few parts as possible. And as soon as they do something, they seem to question, how can we do it better? I think it must be exhausting to work at Tesla because you just never get a break. Whereas if you look at the way the industry traditionally operates, I think the industry operates in blocks of times. 
you develop a car for a number of years and you make it for a number of years. You plan blocks of time effectively. At Tesla, you manage a continuous improvement in a way. And, um, and work tends to grow to fill blocks of time. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And there's none of that. But it's a saying about you know, the best part in a car is the one that doesn't exist. Sergio was also pretty famous, especially looking at like just the work he did to clean up the Chrysler lineup, trying to get towards simplification as well. I, I remember my family almost bought a Jeep Commander, which is a really cool car. Mm-hmm. But he very famously said, I don't know why anyone bought that car. <laughs> if they did, it was a mistake or something like that. Because he was just killing lines mm-hmm. off constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think the impact of Tesla really keeping it down to three or four vehicles net-net on their overall economics are compared to a legacy OEM that's inheriting all Mm -hmm. these sub-brands and other lines? I think it's critical now because effectively when you have a car maker, and we'll see this year, but they'll probably sell maybe a million Model Y and 900,000 800,000 Model 3s, you're getting to Toyota levels of efficiency. And, and Toyota is the most efficient of the legacy car makers. And so I think it's this, this but I think it's more important, it's a, it's a very critical test for the next few years or for the next 10, 20 years is whether this business model of having few models that sell large quantity and where your choice is limited in a way, is that the future? You can see the benefit because we looked at the you know, configurators last summer and based on our work, we came to the conclusion that when you order a Model 3 in the UK, you have a choice of 60 combinations only between color and trim. And typically for most car manufacturers, it's going to be 5,000 or more because there are so many grades of equipment, options, etc. And Volkswagen with the ID3 is almost 1,200. So it's very telling to see how difficult it is to go from one world to another. And because, of course, ID3 at Volkswagen is supposed to be the response to Tesla, but they're not able to get to that level of simplicity because their business model is based on choice and a full line of models. And the way it matters is whether this is just a short-term benefit to Tesla where, fine, they can do it for a while, but then eventually they're going to have to have 20 different models to continue or not. And then that's why I flip back to maybe you know, the outside business models is in the case of the iPhone is effectively black or white. And the difference, of course, is the software you have in it. The apps I have on mine would be different than the apps you have on yours. The second thing that's interesting about the iPhone is that it transcends income levels in many ways. Whether you make a million dollars a year or make $50,000 a year, most likely you'll have an iPhone if you have joined the world of Apple. And so if that's going to be the model, or if that model applies to Tesla and then lasts more than two years, then it, it puts a lot of pressure on the car industry. But we don't need to have 100 different models at Volkswagen to serve customers. But we don't know yet if that's the case. But it could be very, very transformational. If, if the hardware effectively is downgraded compared to the functionality and the software. Yeah, margin lives in what consumers want to spend on, on luxury. And as, mm-hmm. as long as luxury exists like it used to exist in most products and customization, then the products will always be much more difficult to make. But mm-hmm. as soon as you start shifting that to where people have a, the every man's phone is also mm-hmm. the phone of the, the billionaire, so mm-hmm. to speak, and the customization is all the things around that in the digital ecosystem. It's a totally new challenge for the mm-hmm. car industry. But I think that's also why you can be much more profitable like Apple is. If mm-hmm. margin exists in the digital realm, mm-hmm. then the marginal cost of creating it is much yeah. lower. And then you start designing products also that last longer. We know, for example, that batteries keep surprising for the better in terms of longevity. And there has been work done on developing batteries that can last a million miles, which is much longer than the traditional hardware of a car. But it doesn't mean that car makers cannot design also 
know the body that will support a million miles and or can you design batteries so that they can be not just recycled but potentially be used into another car or can you design a car where tesla is doing it where the batteries are part of the structure is there a way to change the panels of the vehicle so it looks different but then the frame lasts longer so it's the challenges that that the industry is facing are, are very deep in in a complete potentially a complete reinvention of how cars are conceived and manufactured. Maybe one last question on on this. When you think about your career and how things have changed, how has the rise of Tesla affected the way people around you view your job? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because for me as an analyst covering Tesla, what I find is my discussion with investors are with auto investors, of course, because now wherever you are, you cannot ignore Tesla because Tesla is reinventing the way the business model. I'm, I'm saying it's the but it's a future, and and so everybody has to pay attention. And even if you just cover European companies, you have to be aware of Tesla. And what I found more and more is also discussion about investors who will not you know buy Tesla or because it's just outside of their realm, but they an appetite to understand what happened and uh, how a company could actually upend an industry. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you see Tesla still, even as the world has shifted in, in how it views this company and mm -hmm. in popular culture, et cetera, and retail investors are investing. Because you see it through the lens of an auto company, an mm -hmm. industrial company, it's not so much the shared fleets, as, as much as you're interested mm -hmm. in the potential of shared mobility, roaming Teslas that are mm -hmm. going to be shared, et cetera, yeah. mm -hmm. that makes it an, an interesting mm -hmm. company and a, and a valuable stock that mm -hmm. I think you've been long on mm -hmm. early and, and for some time. Mm -hmm. yeah. But much more the fact that it can take 40 components mm -hmm. and make them into one. That's where the true innovation or, or, or the value of the, the company is coming yeah. from. Yes, yeah, so far, it, the product itself has been a massive innovation and influence the thinking of many other car makers. At some point, as you say, there's a network of cars going around and all this. We don't know yet. It's definitely part of the thinking. It's part of the thinking of many car makers, but it seems to be incredibly complicated to, <laughs> to get to a level where autonomy is reliable. There's a bit of a frame shift. At Fiat, for example, I think you mentioned it, but the best component is one that doesn't exist. It's mm -hmm. always been a, a philosophy in the manufacturing world to try simplifying, reduce the number mm -hmm. of moving components. But if car makers are just looking within the frame of we make an ICE vehicle and they don't understand digitization and the role that centralized compute can play, that philosophy is the same philosophy Tesla has. It's just now these new companies are able to apply it to a broader swath of things. How do you use standardized components and modularity to strip out what could be a repeat mm -hmm. component? In the traditional auto industry, a lot of simplicity has come through acquiring competitors and then streamlining product lines by badge engineering, mm -hmm. keeping the consumer brand, but just putting other companies' products under that brand or at least simplifying architectures. And this like never-ending march of consolidation over the past period of the automotive era has ended up with these mega companies like Stellantis today, which was Fiat and then mm. Fiat Chrysler and then now FCA and Peugeot and everyone has come together. Do you call mm. it a never ending march of consolidation or like <laughs> a kind of musical chairs yeah. of companies yeah. being passed on from one owner to another? There are two big directions in, in that. Very often there's relatively little M&A in autos among the car makers. And, and when there is Mostly, you know, buy a car maker and then try to revive it. And we saw when PSA bought Opal, they decided to, you know, they 
recreate an attractive model range and rather than rationalize. Having said that, against that trend, we've seen over time waves of brand killing or brand disappearance. Pontiac is no longer with us. Mercury. Typically in moments of crisis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Buick probably wouldn't be with us if it hadn't been successful in China. And so what's the question mark for me, if cars are going to get more streamlined, you know, simpler, and, uh, and we're going to move from one powertrain to another, how will all the brands survive or not? And that's a question mark around some of the, there are fewer and fewer, but there are still a few conglomerates of brands. It's mostly Volkswagen and Stellantis today. And um, the question, how do they manage to specialize their brands so they don't overlap? But can those brands still be with us in five years? They may disappear under pressure, or should some of the OEMs actually accelerate that disappearance because they decide that this particular brand shouldn't be electrified and will live 10 years because there'll be demand for their products non-electrified for 10 years and eventually they go away. You, you mean like the Hummer? <laughs> shouldn't be like that. But, but if yeah. you're right that like what gives Tesla an advantage mm -hmm. is its simplicity, both mm -hmm. in terms of the number of yeah. products and mm -hmm. the complexity yeah. of those individual products, mm -hmm. then if other car makers are going to be competitive, they probably yeah. do need to move in this direction. Yeah. But and, and you've seen in smartphones, yeah. mm -hmm. you no longer get Nokia was famous for four numbers mm. next to the 3580 mm. or whatever yeah. these were because they had so many different models mm -hmm. had to keep track of them and kept iterating new models and then the iPhone came out it was mm -hmm. just the iPhone yeah and the question mark that we don't know it, but it's a critical one for me in the next two years is there's this business model of the phone does it transfer to autos or are autos so special that you no know, people will not accept to see basically 10 models dominate and a few others and Government interference is something that's unique mm -hmm. about the automotive industry yes. mm -hmm. that you don't have so much in smartphone yeah. manufacturing. Yeah, which is interesting because in, you could argue there is a strategic concern around telecommunications that could make that industry, whereas it's clearly obvious in autos. Well, interesting. I mean, telecom is yeah. highly... It's always been considered a national strategic priority. Mm -hmm. yeah. The people that make radios and whatnot, mm -hmm. but the phones themselves yeah. have just slid under the radar, so to yeah. speak. Mm -hmm. But in the auto industry, I think to your point, Olaf, it's like, whether it's jobs and we want factories in our country or like you can't really, there's this joke I think Bill Burr makes, you can't be a real country unless you have an airport, a beer and a car company. It's really interesting how tied up it is with yep. local politics and the desire for persistence of local mm -hmm. brands. Yeah, which I think puts a cap on consolidation. There will still be a large number of car makers. We could do with fewer car makers in terms of the industry structure and the returns, but this idea we can end up with five comics around the world, I is not really credible. Yeah, Pontiac can go away, but nothing will allow GM to see, mm. so to speak, yeah. or with the French let Peugeot really just mm -hmm. go away. Well, we started this with Renault, and mm -hmm. Renault and Nissan have this awkward mm -hmm. alliance, which isn't a consolidation, truly, yeah. but it's also they can't really separate from each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. And both of those governments, the French and the Japanese, mm -hmm are super involved yeah. mm -hmm. beyond the normal focus in industry. No, it's, it's a perfect example where I think in the case of Renault Nissan not being consolidated is cultural as well as political interference. And I think the the role of governments is preventing probably a more a deeper rationalization of the industry. So consolidations of brands is one thing, but is Stellantis ever going to get to the point where it has three or four EV platforms? that it uses across all of its brands mm -hmm. to be much more similar to Tesla, 
or and, and what does that evolution over the next, I don't know, 10 years of Solantis mm-hmm. look like between all the things they've inherited from PSA and FCA? And Isn't part of the problem with doing that that you're going to have more simplicity on the manufacturing side and so therefore you're going to massively mm-hmm. cut down on your hiring mm-hmm. uh, and your headcount for manufacturing? Isn't that how you become more competitive? But mm-hmm. also the reason the government's so involved is because mm-hmm. we saw in the bailouts, automotive jobs are some of the most politically mm-hmm. important jobs. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think governments are, by now, because it's been talked about for at least five years, now all realize that you, know, you need probably fewer workers to build an EVs than what you did before. And if the model of the Tesla model, a few models, large volume wins, then you're going to you know, shrink the headcount requirements of the industry. I think governments know it. And that's what every car maker seems to be talking about, retraining. I think Renault again was talking about this. And I think that's right now, it's no longer a question of resisting or arguing. It's a, we all agree that's happening. We just need to accommodate. Philippe, thank you for, yeah. thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great to, great to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.